0: Toby, can we just, hey Toby.
1: Well, hi everybody and welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast.
0: My name is Toby Miller and my guest today is Peter Chow-White from the uh, School of Communication at the uh, Simon Fraser University.
1: And Peter, it's a great joy to have the chance to speak to you. We've just caught up on some family issues, particularly at my end, and that was nice. But now we're talking about what might rock the world or not, or what might be rocked by the world. So I'm wondering if you could share with us a little bit about what's preoccupying you right now, what you're thinking about, what matters to Peter Chow White these days. (laughs)
0: Hmm. Well, first of all, Toby, thank you very much for having me here. Um, uh, this is a, uh, it's kind of a, a career coming full circle. Um, you know, for people who may not know is that uh, my relationship with Toby goes back probably almost 20 years. Um, when I was a grad student at USC and in Los Angeles, that's is where I first got to know Toby face to face. Of course, I knew his work and all his great work that he's done over the years. But, um, but that was a place where, he was being drawn to, and I was a grad student at, and so I was very, very lucky to, um, to, uh, to get to know, to get to know you at that time. Um, you and I also spent some time in a very, very hot hotel room, um, in, uh, in, in, uh, in Palm Springs or Palm Desert, it was, and it doesn't sound like what it sounds like. I'm sure everybody knows, but we had this stats camp or something like that between these, the, the two grad schools that I was, that we were affiliated with. And, uh, and I took a course from you, which is a week long. Uh, Toby's Power Hour of, uh, of Cultural Studies. It was fantastic. I don't know if you remember that. Do you remember that? Toby? I do. And the thing,
1: this was an astonishing place. So Palm Desert is where the chauffeurs are put up for the rich people to mm-hmm. live in and visit right. Palm Springs. And right. the hotel room where we had our class, in the middle of the Northern Hemisphere summer when it was 100 degrees outside, give or take, had the oh, heat central heating on. <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah, that's right that's right <laughs>
1: nothing yeah. we could do would yeah. take it off and so whatever the content yeah. was that we were discussing was in a sense washed away through our perspiration
0: <laughs> yes yes l- l- luckily in this in this uh you know two or three star hotel that the uh that the two Annenbergs had rented out for this month-long symposium or workshops or whatever it was and I think our classroom was was a hollowed out room basically <laughs> They put in some desks, like some tables and some chairs, and we we I think there must have been a dozen of us that squeezed into this room to talk about all things Stuart Hall cultural studies, bell hooks, et cetera, et cetera. It was quite the experience and and, yeah. and you had office hours at a coffee shop down the street. I remember that you said, "I'll be here in the morning, come chat with me." yeah <laughs> it was great uh, this
1: is this is one of these places in not only in the United States but especially there, where sitting outside these coffee shops have light showers of water that come down mm-hmm. on you, yeah, dry right. on your skin <laughs> <It's> <laughs>
0: right. yeah yeah it's it's it quite quite the experience so you <laughs> know so that that was that was kind of some of the, uh, the formative moments of my grad school of days <laughs> um and uh, i've always looked back fondly and the other person i sat in a room we had I, had I had a course with the joe tarot at um at Edinburgh east and and this was before you know joe was like uh, joe was starting to do the surveillance stuff no he had been doing the surveillance stuff he published some stuff, but it wasn't particularly well known for some reason. Although mm-hmm. I got to know it really well because as I started to um, to start doing work on big data before it was called big data, back then it was just called um, uh, knowledge discovery and databases and data mining. Uh, the the literature around that was a straight line from Foucault's Discipline and Punish through Oscar's work, um, uh, Oscar Gandhi that is, great Oscar Gandhi, and Joe Terro. Um, uh, who was it at Queens in uh, in Canada? Here, there's a couple of folks at Canada, UBC in sociology, Queens Sociology, and and, and a few others um, had started to try and understand how how information it was called back then. We weren't calling it even data; it was called information society. You know, following globalization, oh, David right? Lyon, maybe David Lyon, exactly, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So mm-hmm. David's work um, and uh, and the risk society stuff around policing. Uh, like the, the, these were the origins of what we call algorithmic studies in big data today. And so, and so to, to be able to take a course from, you know, someone like yourself who was, you know, and, and this, and there's the ferment around um, what the internet was, you know, we didn't know if we should call them users. We know if we should call them an audience. Like how, how do we trans, how do we transition from audiences in the 20th century to people who are basically just looking for information on the internet and chatting in chat rooms. You know, I remember being in arguments around this in grad class. These are users. No, these are audiences. Like, what is yeah. it? You know, and uh, those were heady days. Those are really heady days. And I was really lucky to be at a place that was, and in a, a discipline that had had grabbed onto the internet. You know, sociology didn't. They should have, but they didn't. Uh, but communication did, and the Amber School at USC did as well. And, and so having you and the work that you've done around cultural studies, you know, was, 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 sort of was that language that we were trying to transition into this new space. And it was, it was a fascinating, fascinating time. Um, and I've, I've always appreciated look back as, as a really important part in in kind of the birth of where I've come to today.
1: Well, thank you, Peter. And where you've come to now is the product of your own talents and diligence as much as it is of anybody else. Mm. But relating to that, I guess you're one of the big wheels of big data, if I can say that. That's that's, that's nice of you. And I wonder if you could tell us what big data was and what big data is, whether there's a difference between the two.
0: Yeah, yeah. I've been around long, long enough now to, 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 to see, I've been lucky enough to, at a time to see this kind of change. And I think that's one of the things I look back on over the last about 20 years. And, and I wasn't going to study big data. You know, I, I wasn't really looking at data at, um, originally, like my original, you know, dissertation project was something that was close, that's connected to my MA thesis. And, and I'd, I'd finished my comprehensive exams and I'd written, I'd talked to with, my, my committee about what I was going to do. And, and my, I, was, I was one of the very first students of Manuel Castell students at, at USC when he moved there. So it was very, again, I was just lucky, lucky place, lucky time. And uh, working with him was was amazing uh, amongst, you know, people like Sarah Benny Weiser, Rita Sturkin, Sandra Ball like you know, these were really important people and, and, and just gifted people, but also gifted um, supervisors, gifted academics. And I learned a lot um, from being there that I take with me. Um, but, uh, you know, I had, I, life changed for me over, you know, over, over a summer and, and, and the travel I thought I'd do for my dissertation wasn't going to be possible. So I had to retool and, uh, completely retool. And I was, I was at a, I was at a chapters one afternoon in uh, in Vancouver here, near where I live in Granville and Broadway. And I picked up a book by Troy Duster. Um, uh, it wasn't, I'm just a blanket on the name, name of it. It was a book, his book on DNA. And at the very back of it. It had in the last chapter talking about supercomputers and how supercomputers and DNA and identity and race and stuff was going to change with the Human Genome Project. And and he said he mentioned this thing called data mining. And this is where I I was like, okay, what is this? Because while everybody else was studying the front of the internet, like where people were going, what the images were, you know, kind of moving media studies like into and reading texts and things like that. Joe and, and the surveillance folks were interested on how all the information was being gathered and it was moving behind the, the internet, through the pipes and the databases that were being created and how information was going to be manip- manipulated, that kind, of, that, that kind of caught my attention. Mm. And, and so, but they, but they were calling it data mining. And this was a very um, new type of technology and intellectual approach. Um, you can actually point to the beginning of it with these, there are these people in the, at the edge of computing science and statistics. I interviewed a bunch of them that, that started this thing called the, the, the Knowledge Discovery and Database Journal in the, early, in the early mid-90s. The very first dissertation in the United States on, was at least we know in the United States, was um, by a, a Russian-born uh, fella. No, not Russian. No, he was from the Middle East, I think. His name is Samafayad. And he wrote a dissertation at Michigan Um, data that he had taken that he had done a a summer work study at GM and GM was trying to figure out how to take all of these instruction manuals for their cars and make it accessible for mechanics all around the United States so this was like an original big data problem and so he this has developed into his dissertation of a method of doing this this turned into some into into this how to use advanced statistics and how to use computer science to create new knowledge this was the same stuff, the same conversation that were that that was brought into the Human Genome Project, and so I would say the Human Genome Project was the very first big data project, but it wasn't called big data back then. This was science works in a way that we ask questions, we collect data, and then we analyze it. Big data, or at least data mining, was was no, we collect the data first and answer the ask the questions later. <laughs> so it flipped this process, right? And, and so it was it was kind of like you know it was the old kind of wild west thing you know shoot first and ask questions later type stuff right just and, and the interesting thing was is that Craig Venter who had the private human genome project he called his method the shotgun method you know so these metaphors of, of, of collecting things and pulling them apart and putting them back together. Like it was, it was really fascinating. And um so I, I was interested in studying this stuff and, and understanding, I want to contribute to this, you know, how is human genomics? And I was really interested in racial race and racial identity. I wasn't sure where I was going to, you know, make, you know, what I was going to study or who I was going to talk to. And when you're trying to figure out like how ones and zeros and databases are operating, like like I, I'm I'm uh, you know, I, I learned from you know sociologists and people who talk to people like yourself, right? And uh and so I but I'm like who do I talk to? And so a, a friend of mine had said had said to me, you know, there's this thing called the Hap the, the Human Genome Project, and there's another one called the HapMap Project, which is this, which is its second human genome project, you know, and and what I was interested in was is that by the end of the 20th century, the conversation around race and biology. And the end of the Human Genome Project found that, hey, we are all 99.9% the same, which was supposed to be the nail in the coffin for, for the conversation on biology and race. You know, there was a huge, uh, in 2001, there was a big announcement at the end of the Human Genome Project. And it was the uh, Bill Clinton was there, Craig Venture was there, Francis Collins from the public project. They all sat there and they all said, you know, this is the blueprint for humanity. We all remember this. So those of us were around. But they also said was is that this is the, they basically said this is the end of the story around racist biology as well, right? That material for creating racial formation was at an end because we have confirmed that we are all 99.9% the same underneath, underneath the genome. So that was it. But what happened over the next 10 years was more racial data was collected in terms of gen- genome and genomics than probably the entire 19th century and 20th century put together. Mm-hmm. Right? So there's a tension there, right? There's a tension in terms of how science and technology, you know, like the, one of my favorite sayings that I learned along the way was, is that technology may not be good and it may not be bad necessarily, but it's also not neutral. And so that was a starting point for me that I got from Toy Duster. And so and so while mm-hmm. while this new knowledge was being discovered in databases and data mining, you know, what's at stake in terms of how do we take these cultural practices? and cultural frameworks around things like race and gender, or just a broader umbrella like difference, how is that going to be mined and mapped into these new technologies and these scientific discoveries?
1: And that event we are so talking about, I think Tony Blair was there virtually. And mm-hmm. the things that... Absolutely
0: right. Absolutely that right. Yeah. and
1: Clinton and Blair claimed was, this is also going to be the end of illness.
0: Yes, that's right. We're going that's to be right.
1: able to intervene to make everything better. And of course, on on the one hand, yes, there was this post-racial discourse, which keeps being announced in the United States and never achieved. But also, actually, further genomic research has shown there are some real problems with that, because again and again, white guys were taken as the gold standard or the norm of the world. And even within that group, you know, there's this huge Danish genomic project that is sort of saying, there's a Viking gene.
0: <laughs> That's right. That's right. That's right. Like th- th- this, this is this is the trick, right? Is that we usually think of science as the independent variable and culture as the dependent variable. Scientific knowledge impacts how we how culture our cultural understanding. Yeah. But for us, I, we we want to flip that. And my interest was especially in science and technology studies and and and, and the work I did in communication and STS was is that I want to flip that. I want to understand how culture is impacting science. Right. If this is the case that is 99.9 percent the same, why did the HapMap project look at three geographic groups? This is where the language changes, right? And so, but if you the 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 HapMap project was, we're going to go from one genome uh, to you know 100 and I think it was 120 genomes or something like that. But we're going to take them from Europe, Africa, and Asia, right? So we're not talking the language of race. But we're using the American the American geography of, of racial identity, right? So, what do you expect to get out of that type that type of approach? But as I talk to people, that are doing this. You know, it was this is this is where this, these tensions are, right? Because this is where our sort of cultural practices impact, but are also shaping our understanding of not just science but also technology in general. Is that well? On the one hand you know these actors scientists and actors and the actors in the space they don't want to recreate race and they're very thoughtful about it and they have ethicists and you know scholars working on these sorts of things but on the other hand colleagues of mine like alondra nelson you know are researching how dna and ancestry tests are helping african americans reconstruct history their yes. history so to speak yes. right you know and i i it's confusing in a way, right? Cause science is supposed to be science, right? And, 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 our, and, you know, so, so how do you, how do you think about, how do you think about that? I haven't resolved that. Um, you know, Alondra is, as, as, you know, everybody who's who knows Alondra Nelson and who's, you know, <laughs> who's, you know, was in the white house last year. What's, it's interesting to see one of us that's worked in cultural studies end up as chief science scientific advisor in the, in the white house. It's a fascinating a trajectory. Um, and leading these conversations on AI international these days, but you know, this, this, that that kind of tension is something that I, you know, it's hard to resolve, right? It's very difficult to, to, to resolve. And, and it, but it also shows that, you know, is that when we think of science and technology, like culture is really driving these things. And that's, that's the key linchpin I kind of think in terms of. You know, what makes us makes us human is is this, uh, you know, our 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 sort of social operating system that we're constantly working on through discourse and through interactions and through technology invention and intervention and those sorts of things. So, you know, how we became big data is is also interesting. I mean, thanks to O'Reilly Media, we kind of became big data at some point, (laughs) you know. I remember hearing the word around late two thousands and going, Oh, what is this thing? You know, and of course I'm appealing to I'm feeling the tension of well, you know, those of us have been working in this space for a long time, you know, Oscar Gandhi's great book that, you know, on um on uh, uh came out in the early uh in the early nineties, you know, kind of setting the, the tone and the direction of these types of conversations. And all of a sudden the, the panoptic sort. Yeah, the Panoptic yeah. Sortbook. Exactly. Yeah. 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 And th- th- these are kind of the things that people working algorithmic s- rather algorithmic studies area, you know, in critical data studies. I hope that this is being learned and taught and understood is that, you know, there is a, a fairly straight line from, from Discipline and Punish to Oscar's work and, and, and the, and the other surveillance folks in the nineties that's kind of blossomed into this other, this really important, important area now that we all live in kind of an algorithmic culture. But, I remember that's the, this sort of the big data became a buzzword. And that's where this, this, this word, it, this word became all of a sudden it came out of the Academy and it came out of the R and D of, you know, of Yahoo and Intel and all these other places. And it became a massive buzzword. I remember seeing, you know, the big, I have this one picture that I show students of almost an, there's this almost an evangelical scene of in like a stadium sized meeting with big data across the screen and one person as like the prophet of big data and everybody wants to know more about big data. Like that was, you know, going from Oscar's book to mass consumption of the word was, was really strange to be perfectly honest. It was very weird, but. If that's the word that I needed to use to communicate with people inside and outside of the academy, then then so be it. Who am yeah, I to say,
1: right? One of the things I'm yeah. interested in is this very strange word, analytics, <laughs> which is a coinage uh, yeah. because no one can say the word analysis anymore. That's unacceptable. <laughs> and in sports, I'm looking in particular at association football or soccer, as it's known to four mm-hmm. percent of the world's population. Mm-hmm which has never had even the basic sophistication of traditional baseball statistics, say, right? Mm -hmm. This has become such a fetish that what are called expected goals, Mm i.e. what should Mm -hmm. theoretically have been converted into a goal given an attacking player's opportunity, becomes more important than actual goal. (laughs) (laughs) So when you say, you know, this team lost 3-0, or three zip or whatever yeah. say yeah. but they're not going to have a bad season, even though they're bottom of the table at the moment and they just lost three nil because their expected goal number is yeah absolutely yeah.
0: Absolutely yeah. Wonderful. Yeah. yeah you know it's it, it, it's fascinating this is the other thing that, that um, So you know I started looking at big data within genomics and but also understanding where genomics came from was part of understanding what big big data was and and uh, I wrote a paper with a, a very talented um, uh, historian called Miguel uh, Garcia Sancho. And uh, him and I met at a genomics conference in uh, in London back in 2007 or eight, somewhere in there. And I'd, he had just finished his dissertation I was presenting on it. I'd finished my dissertation, started publishing out of it, and I listened to him and I was like, "Wow, we're having the exact same conversation." You know, let's. And so we met, and, and I'm like, "Hey, this is like we this is the only time we met face to face was that one meeting after his thing." And I'm like, "Hey." So, you know, look, we should take a chapter out of yours and a chapter out of mine and we'll put them together. And, but he was interested in how the, the like he's a historian. So how DNA sequencing became, you know, became automated and, and how those two automation processes, the Sanger one and then the, uh, the Leroy Hood one. So Sanger did uh, create a DNA sequencer in, uh, in the UK and then Leroy Hood created one in, um, in the US and they both worked a bit differently. And so he had kind of kind of his book was writing on how the same technology gets done in different contexts. It's so very ethnographic, yeah. fascinating book, really, really great scholar. Um, I think he's in uh, in, in Scotland now, a, a university there, maybe Glasgow. And um, and so he had kind of written a, a history of the Human Genome Project up to around the 1990s. I had written a history of the human genome project and that was kind of, that came from there. And what, what we called genomics was is that is, is that the databases themselves became a space of convergence. That's what we called it. And what we meant by a space of convergence was, is that these weren't just tools that molecular biologists borrowed from computing and computing helped the human genome project. But this, but creating these genome databases was a meeting place of institutional practices Of disciplinary norms, of cultural understandings, and there was an exchange that goes on through these databases. That became the new space of mediation, and this is where media studies helped me think about this: is that uses media as a you know film, television, legacy media that we knew as mediating cultural identity and and human and practices and understandings of ourselves, you know, the base of humanity. And so I started to think about we started to think about the database: how's the database doing that? Because data isn't just a fact, but it's a representation. And where there's representation, there is a negotiation over meaning. And so that's where we kind of thought about these things. And so what what happened there was, is that the Human Genome Project, it changed molecular biology in some ways, like biology changed computing science in ways. And Mm. genomics wasn't one or the other, it was something new. And that's where I think big data and this thing like analytics is creating something new. It's a new type of practice. It's a new type of, not just type of practice, but a way of thinking, a way of seeing, just Mm. like you're describing soccer. We're looking at the game, like, you know, the old heads like us want to look at the game and see goals go in. But then you've got this whole generation that's coming up thinking almost analytically in a sense where there, there's a whole other type of data that's just just as important. There's a whole other lens and representational system and discourse around thinking about something like sports, which and, is fascinating.
1: And, and sports scouts, people who are looking for new talent, are being displaced by so right. analytics people.
0: That's right that's right so, yeah going uh, yeah.
1: and seeing how the person plays the sport whatever it is doesn't yeah. matter
0: yes yeah uh, looking and, and seeing and, and, how the and, person relates to
1: others doesn't matter
0: yeah, and and this is where those tensions happened in the early two thousands. As and and this is where you know this is these 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 data mining practices that start around things like you know GM Motors and Human Genome Project and lots of other places. You know, especially when you think about um, uh, the the emergence of search technology and Google and things like that. Like th- these are these are big data companies, right? Not just internet companies, but big data companies. Um, what we're seeing in sports was something that the the book Moneyball, um, written by the great Michael Lewis um and captured by uh by Aaron Sorkin's script in the movie Moneyball with the uh with Brad Pitt, of course. Um, you know, I I I grew up I grew up, you know, uh, watching Brad Pitt and seeing Brad Pitt movies and and always going into these theaters. I'm like, oh there's that guy Brad Pitt again. You know, like, <laughs> can I be compared with someone else, please? How long will he have his shirt on? <laughs> exactly, exactly. But, the, but what Moneyball captured was the adoption of big data in professional sports. And this is the thing the analytics you're talking about. This is what, ha- so big data became a thing as it was becoming a thing, this was a process of adoption across many industries, many types of sectors, you know, not just in, but also in private sector and the public sector, you know, the academy had been doing it for many, many years. But what analytics captures over analysis is is this move from analysis and creating knowledge to, to making knowledge work, to putting in the hands of people who are doing things and making decisions to create new things or to build something. Right. And what was really interesting about when, as I was thinking about big data and I saw this movie Moneyball, I'm like, Oh, this is just big data. And so I actually uh, thought one of my projects that I, I haven't, I haven't, formally published yet although i've done a lot of working now is actually in sports analytics and i found along the way as i was you know research and writing about big data and then about how big data and social media and then also kind of and also um you know big data also impacted the academy especially in the social sciences because all of a sudden it's like hey we can actually collect more data we can collect a lot more data you know, in Twitter and social media enabled us to, instead of having a focus group of six, you could grab Twitter and have a focus group of a million, right? And so big data started to impact and a whole new type of, of social science, sort called computational social science, started to become a thing. So to be qualitative, quantitative, and also computational. So I got really interested in this, in how to measure and how to, and how to, you know, how to understand culture at a much, much larger scale. Mm-hmm. And I was really interested in these new tools. Like, you know, I learned content analysis at USC, you know, how to, you know, the, the great Klaus Krichendorf you know, wrote the book on it at Annenberg East. And I'm like, oh, okay, this is interesting. We, we, you know, I was doing textual analysis on the one hand, and which was deep and rich, but then content analysis could, could be a much more, could be a lot more expansive you know, it's not as deep and rich, but it could also be more expansive, right? And I thought the, the brilliance was those two things coming together, yeah. right? Right. So framing on the one hand, but also counting on the other, not seeing them as, you know, they, they've got different logics, but not seeing them as opposing, uh, opposing relationships within the academy. Now, I know that's controversial. People have very different opinions about that. That, that, that. That's okay. I'm not here to resolve that, but I wanted to explore them. And as I was exploring them and learning more computational stuff, I saw Moneyball and I'm like, that's his big data. Um, I'm going to start studying this because that happened in baseball. I love basketball. So I'm like, how is this happening in basketball? And I found this culturally rich history of a parallel world in basketball that somehow interacted with the Moneyball folks in baseball, but then also interacted with with Osama Fayyad at GM after he'd done his dissertation the data mining folks. Because one of the very first... Uh, uh, big data projects in sports wasn't actually in baseball, Billy Bean. It was actually with the NBA in the mid 1990s and Pat Riley at the New York Knicks. And so, this is so there's these really interesting crisscrossing histories, right? That I got to, I was really lucky to find these folks. And I've got this stuff written up. I just haven't published it yet. I became director of the School of Communication for a few years. That put my book on hold, oddly enough, you know, and I'm, I'm trying to get back to that now. But as I was researching the big data stuff in sports um, and the adoption of it, I realized this is math. This is not advanced statistics. This this is not even computational. It's literally math. So I went to the basketball coach at SFU and I said, hey, um, do you want to, uh, you ever heard of Moneyball? And he's like, oh, yeah. And I go, do you want to do that stuff for your team? He's like, oh, okay. Uh, What do I need to do? I said, nothing. Just whatever whatever I ask for, just say yes to everything I say. I'll build this thing for you. And so, and so I actually built the very first um I built the analytics program for the sFU men's basketball team at first to get it going once it was working, I went to the basketball coach the women's basketball coach and offered it to them because you know one of the things in in big data, especially in sports analytics is it needs like a title nine for sports analytics It's yeah. all guys, all the conferences were guys, all the work was men's teams, and I'm like that's not okay uh, and so I would offer I would offer it to the women's team as well to the coaches there, so I worked with both of them. And, um, and I, and, and lots of students got working on this and it became very interdisciplinary. I had to learn about computing science, had to learn about advanced statistics, you know, and, uh, and I had to kind of build my own space of convergence within the lab and and have these conversations about people doing things and how they needed information to, to, to add, to make actions, right. To make decisions, to make strategies, to, 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 to do something out in the world and operationalize knowledge. And I think that that really helped me understand that at a much, much deeper level. And that worked, turned into working for the, with John her coach, John Herbman, the national women's soccer team came to came to me at SFU and asked for help. And uh, the program that my students helped build, they used it in the Olympics and the uh, and the World Cup uh, uh, for a period of years. Um, you know, so, you know, so interesting going from studying these things into kind of doing these things was an interesting, you know, just um, I didn't plan it. It just kind of happened. So,
1: well, Profit yeah, is a identical. wonderful story, and it makes me think about some of the work of Justin Lewis, uh, where Justin is trying to challenge the quantoid, qualtoid, bifurcation that so often plagues the social sciences
0: mm-hmm. and
1: mm-hmm. is saying, look, numbers are basically agglomerations of concepts and words and categories. That's right. And you take concepts, words, categories, you turn them into numerical items, you manipulate them, then you transform them back into words and that's science. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. The problem for qual- uh, qualtoid people is that they don't really want to participate in that kind of transformation. They don't see value in it. They think that a purely hermeneutic reading of, say, a text is enough. And, of course, but, it's very valuable, as you suggest, Peter. Absolutely. But yeah. understanding how representative that is is very important, too, my problem, yeah. though, with the so-called computational manoeuvre often is that actually it's not very rigorous in quantitative terms. So you get everybody from journalists to social scientists saying things like this is public opinion when it's not a random sample. Yeah. Uh, yeah. To take a, a classic yeah. instance uh, of cricket yeah. in the Indian Premier League, yeah. which w- where suddenly you can get millions of people announcing views on these are requirements for Pakistani players entering India. And, of yes. course, that's important because it represents yes. the core element of nationalistic public opinion, but it's not public opinion. <laughs>
0: yes, yes, yes. No? Yeah, no, it, this, this is where, you know, uh, this is, and as you know, this is not about quantitative, it's not about qualitative, it's not about computational, it's not about big data, it's about politics, right? And politics uses powerful discourses to persuade Right. Sorry for the alliteration, but you know, and, and we have, um, quantitative science has, you know, the last, the latter part of the 20th, 20th century was the rise of, was uh, during the 20th century, sociology and, and tried to be more scientific and look like that, you know, and so people like C. Wright Mills in the middle of the 20th century writing, were firing back saying, no, no, you know, we need to have a sociological imagination. imagination. Right? We need to understand the relationship between biography and history between the social, right. And, and, and the local and, and the local and the global, like these are important things. Right. right. And, and, and I think for, for my, for, for me in particular, I somehow along the way, um, I really wanted to develop um, a toolkit for asking questions and answering questions. And, and, and it, it could be qualitative. It could be quantitative and and it could be computational. I was just lucky to be, coming up as a junior scholar in in my career where I could learn, where I could, I could, you know, um, help. I could learn these new things and I could try them out and I could experiment. And the space in the school of communication at Simon Fraser University was a really good place for that. If I was at a different institution that had a much, a, a different type of threshold for outputs for publications in terms of it has to be in these journals and you have to have these many a year or these sorts of things, you know, we, we have a high standard in school of communication, you know, where we, we 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 like to do very good work and excellence is important to us, but experimentation is also well supported as well. And if I, if I didn't have that space for experimentation, you know, I, I might not have tried these things that I really enjoyed doing, wow. you know, and, and these powerful discourses, of course, you know, the most powerful quantitative discourse we have is like, is around DNA, right? We've all seen the processuals, we've all seen the courtroom dramas, where all, where all of a sudden DNA comes in and that's it, hundred percent accuracy, right? The reality is that it's not. <laughs> it's very it's fraught with all of the problems of of quantitative of, of handling data, of mismanagement of data, but also of an analysis itself. And this is one of the places I had I the of the space of the convergence that I I spent a lot of time and I still do work in, um, is is around genomics and health. Because interestingly, when I came back to Canada, um, I was doing work around race and genomics and, and connecting with really interesting people in the U S has, has a, a wealth of scholars that I still keep in that. We still have, we still have a, a, a listserv that's very, very active with some with scholars that do race and genomic work. And um, but when I came back to Canada, it was, I couldn't get funded. Like the funding bodies that were funding genomics and Canada has a really interesting, had created a, Canada wanted to make sure that they were uh, uh, they were on the world stage as far as genomic research was concerned. So the Canadian government set up something, some some arm's length um um, organizations called Genome Canada. And then there was, and then there's little genomes, genome BC, Genome Alberta, uh, there was prairie genomes and then Genome Ontario. And so these were passed through. These these sort of money passed through organizations. And and it's really interesting because these pass-through organizations, what they're there for is the government just doesn't give doesn't know how to give money straight to researchers. So they set up organizations that will hold the money, create the funding programs, and then give them to researchers. Sometimes these organizations don't understand their pass throughs. Like they're not the ones who should be setting the course of, of, where, of where the research could go, but, but they need to somehow set up programs. They need to decide. So, so they decide what's going to be funded. And interesting in BC, what was being funded at the time was, was traditional British Columbian industries. So there were genomic programs around salmon genomics there was tree genomics there was lavender genomics for some reason and there was something else I, cu- I couldn't imagine but they weren't interested in race and identity at all and I, I, I couldn't get funding for it I got funded for one small workshop that brought some of these really cool people together um, you know for one day and it was probably one of the very first race and genomics like workshops in Canada but that was it and um, so but what I was getting calls one was, was genomics and health and all of a sudden, i get a phone call from a guy who was doing lavender genomics who was about to submit an application that one of the conditions of the application was having an ethicist on it. And I got called up like a, like, a, like, like I was a, um, uh, like a free agent on a baseball team or something. It's like, hey, I think you'd be great for this. Uh, I'm doing something on lavender genomics. I go, really? Okay. So, sorry. What, what about my work? What, what, did you see that that connects with it? He goes, I don't know. Can, can, you, can you give me a paragraph so I can submit this tomorrow? You know, no 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 thought whatsoever. But that kind of bumbling turned into things with working on a project which created the very first genome-based diagnostic tool that got put into practice in Canada. Right. So one project became walking on the moon, it's human genomics. And what's interesting about what Venture and all of them talked about the ending of illness was is that big data sometimes is, is sometimes very hard. So taking the 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 approach and putting it into practice, that pipeline from knowledge discovery to application can be, you know, in, in sports can happen like that. When it comes to human health, it's a very, very long, uh, long road. Yeah. And what I really learned about the folks working around, uh, especially health, and I work with a lot of oncologists um, on these things called personal oncogenomics group, which is an oncology project in Vancouver. I worked with them for many years. You know, their bar isn't whether or not there's an efficiency score that matches with a the player. Their bar is death. It's human life, you know? And so that was a very different way of thinking about how people are converging around these databases and how they were creating new knowledge and who gets to control ultimately what goes into practice, which is always the doctors, always the doctors, right? And you can see this tension between the bioinformaticians on the one hand going, there's something there. We can see it. we have mined it. We know that something but then you got the doctors, on the other hand, are saying, well, that's not what our cultural, that's not what our professional practice says. This hasn't been confirmed by the community yet. So I can't action that until it's in practice, whatever that meant. In the journals, well-known, there's some adoption of it, right? So it was, um, you know, it was a, uh, uh, it's a very different space to be in. And I, think well, Nicole, I, I learned a knowledge.
1: lot. Well, you know, uh, to get personal here, Peter, as I think, you know, I recently yeah. had major surgery. And because Mm -hmm. of my personal and professional and passport circumstances, I had to pay for it. So I was able to tell the surgeon that I had paid him 1,300 euros and the robot 6,000. Good. That's an interesting conversation. Well, he was astonished and appalled. But, Of of course, the point is this is money for old rope for the owners of the robot because it's been amortized a million times in terms of its costs, its running costs, mm-hmm. bugger all, but you can still charge all this money for it. <laughs> but yeah. it, it's yeah. interesting in that if you look at some of the correlations that exist between recovery from different kinds of surgery, mm-hmm. then using robots, hence artificial intelligence and to a certain extent, big data mm-hmm. is not mm-hmm. the guarantee. It's the history of the surgeon. That's right. That That's right. tells you a great deal. And I'm sure you know more about this than I do
0: yeah, uh,
1: because know. of your, your health genome work. And, of course, the history of the patient in terms yes. of genetic predispositions, conduct, something I don't want to talk about, exposure to environmental harms across one's life big issue in places like Canada and the United States because of the grotesque exploitation of natural resources. All those things become incredibly interesting. But one element in all of this is that on the one hand, it's done as a black box in the way that Ventner, Clinton, Blair were celebrating. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, it comes with a point that's partly neoliberal, which is opening up these black boxes to people Mm -hmm. to explain the knowledge. So if if you're looking to have surgery in the Anglo world or the Spanish or French-speaking world at least, you can actually find out in very clear prose what the clinical data show, what the Mm -hmm. technological advances appear to show, and what the record is often of the person treating you. So there's something in this that can be democratizing, I think.
0: Yeah, yeah. Except democratizing
1: for the middle class, because if you don't have, even with, you know, everyday English or French or whatever it might be, if you're a working class person, then the logics impelling this otherwise quite open prose may not really be readily available.
0: Yeah. 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 And it's it, democratizing is a really, I, I like that that word that you use and because what human genomics also was at a political level was democratization. It was supposed to be the democratization of healthcare. It was supposed to make healthcare more efficient. It was supposed to get more deeper. It was supposed to be more personalized. That's what we get this thing personalized medicine, not just medicine at a at a population sort of level, which was, as we, as we know, was the, the, the middle-class white male tend to be the sort of default setting for research, mm. um, you know, and, until, and that's, you know, slowly been changing over the years with things like in the mid nineties or so as in the U S for example, they had the NIH, um, was it a revitalization act for Clinton? They mandated that the projects had to show how they're, how they're used, including women and people of color and that sort of thing. But these, these policy moves, you know, were part of democratizing, um, mm. Uh, mm. Uh, the, um, uh, healthcare and stuff. And, um, and this is, you know, that this, it's, it's interesting because like the road to democratizing through something like genomics, which I would know it's just another big data, which is a big data approach to health is a very, very long road because um, you have to sequence everybody to do that. Like, to, like, the, to, like part of the process of, of, of personalized medicine is, is personal DNA sequences, right, which is very expensive. It's speeding up and it's getting faster. Like there there's a Moore's law within genomics, as there was with computing, where every eighteen months the, the cost of your computer of the processing power of a computer cuts in half as the processors double in, in capacity every eighteen months, right? So things get faster and cheaper over every eighteen months. And there's hotter. another that, remember. His, hotter.
1: his original essay yes. says in capital
0: letters. Yeah. Heat. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, it, right? yeah, 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 and and but and so but and so there's been a, a you know the first human genome took eight years and cost three billion dollars you know about 15 years later we we got to the one thousand dollar genome in about 24 hours mm. but the machines are incredibly expensive and so I did a calculation once because I know that I got to got to learn about how many sequencers were in the process in, in British Columbia and I was part of a, a working with some people talking about how to do a population level sequencing. And how difficult, expensive that was? Could it be done in the academy? Could it be funded by the government? Would it need to be private pub- public mm-hmm. partnerships? All those sorts of things. I calculated out that under 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 the conditions about six or seven years ago of the province of British Columbia, which is only about you know a few million few million people, maybe five million people, that under with with as long as we didn't have anybody born or anybody immigrate in or out of British Columbia under the the, the current conditions, it would take over a hundred years to sequence everybody. Really? Right, because yeah, hundred years, and that was with a, a one thousand dollar genome that takes about a day or two to sequence, right? So you can imagine the road to democratization is a very very long one because because genomics is hard, extremely difficult, you know. Well, Prof, and so, like, sorry, go ahead. No, 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 go ahead, Toby.
1: No, Prof, Prof. Charles White, we're almost at the end of the conversation, so what I'd like to do now is ask you one more question, if I may, but then. Mm-hmm hand it over to you for things you'd like to add, or maybe mm-hmm. subtract, though I doubt it, <laughs> from what we've already discussed. Does that sound okay? That sounds great, yeah. So my, my question, which is one I just asked another Canadian-based researcher of distinction, uh, our, our colleague Vinnie Mosko, how do you select the topics that you're going to research? How do they come to you? Because some of what we talked about and some of what he talked about is serendipity. Yes. But some of it is purposive, I think.
0: Yeah. Yes. Yes. I'm I'm glad you asked this. Like the the thing I've spent the most time studying in the last seven years or so um, is blockchain. Right. Like the, there's and this is a great time to, to it's a great question to ask that I can I can use this to introduce the, to answer that mm. question is that sometimes I choose you choose these things and sometimes they choose you. So, mm. you know, sometimes circumstance, you know, as with genomics kind of did it to for me, uh, you know, I came up as a, I was a scholar when I started studying the Internet around late 90s, early 2000s. Right. So and so my career as I became as a graduate student, as a junior faculty, my career moved along as the Internet moved along. So, because I've been studying the internet for so long, the internet kind of—I have to keep up with those sorts of things. I'm teaching <laughs> courses on technology, I wish I taught math 101 because that doesn't seem to change much over the years. The <laughs> technology courses seem to have to be I have to redo my syllabus every few years completely. So sometimes there's something new, like it was search and chat, and it was data mining, and then it became big data and social media. Obviously, if you're not studying social media, you know, in communication, then what are you doing? Um, and then things change, but the, the, so the different waves of the internet, 1.0, 2.0, um, and then web three now, uh, is, is, is being formed around the blockchain, blockchain technology in many, many different ways that we don't have time to go into, unfortunately, because that's a whole other conversation. And I think a really, really important one, uh, that's only in its early, early stages. Like I think around blockchain is blockchain technology and the blockchain's impact on society is kind of like where we were at in the mid 1990s. As the internet was just becoming popularized and commercialized, mm-hmm. that's what's happening to blockchain right now. So while we know a lot about it, not everybody's interacting with it, but there's a whole world that's being created um, infrastructurally like the internet was being created in the, two, in the 2000s. So sometimes I choose them. Sometimes I choose me. I'm always interested in power. That's that's how I was taught. That's where I came from. That's what cultural studies showed me. Um, But I'm also was trained in sociology about talking to people and finding things out and understanding how things are working in context. So more empirical stuff as well. So um, you know. I, th- I think it's a combination of, of, of both of those, so- those, so- those sorts of things. Uh, I want to know how Internet's changing the world and how the world's changing the Internet. I want to know how you know, cultural practices and practices of power are shifting, especially around things like race, gender, uh, sexuality, you know, the big, the big you know, vectors of, uh, of society's structure and dominance, as a great Stuart Hall said. Um, you know, uh, Blockchain technology came to me because I bought Bitcoin one day just to figure out how the technology works. It was 2016 and a friend of mine was, and I were talking about it that I do research with uh, is Dr. Sandy green and uh, a very good colleague of mine for many, many years and published together on, on different things and had, had many, many conversations over the years. And he was the one that actually uh, suggested genomics to me many, many years ago. And, um, and he's like, hey, here's this thing called Bitcoin. And so I'm like, oh, is this is this new technology. And what is this thing? It's a technology? No, is it, it's a currency. Well, yes, but it's also a technology. So, you know, this is where it comes to. I start to see these things early and these big waves of technology because of the nature of the work I do I can see, I've, I've developed tools and, uh, and, and methods of analysis and analytics and stuff to figure out where the big waves start early. So I'm kind of like a, you know, like a surfer sitting out on the way on, on, and, you know, paddling around looking for that big wave, right? Not the little ones, but the big ones. And so I've been lucky enough to hit some of those big ones in my, in my career. And so who knows how many are left. And so I bought this thing called Bitcoin to buy this other thing called Ethereum to buy this thing called the DAO. And the DAO is called a Decentralized Autonomous Organization. I know we don't have time to get into this, but of, uh, out of all the mess of conversations about Bitcoin and blockchain stuff there today is what, what I think Bitcoin is best described as. It is a social movement described as a get-rich-quick scheme. Like this thing came out of the rubble of the 2008 economic crisis. Mm-hmm. The, the, when people were, were protesting against the 1%, someone named Satoshi Nakamoto released a white paper that was eight pages long, that was part technical specs, and part political manifesto, and 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 and, and the very first um, genesis block of the very first blockchain was Bitcoin. What is in that block is a news story that talks about the uh, the financial collapse, the global financial collapse. So when we talk about democratization, what this thing was, what I'm starting to understand about this was this was a democratization of money. The democratization of making and transferring value, which had only been in the hands of governments and big banks for as long as I, we can remember in, in Western society. So, I bought this thing to buy this thing called the DAO. The DAO was was this community discussion around it was it was, it was a, a a democratic way of proposing t- projects, voting on projects, discussing projects, and then funding projects rather than the traditional Silicon Valley VC closed room top-down hierarchical way of doing things so there's very different forms of governance that were going on and i was like oh this is really weird so i spent about six months deep diving into the space trying to understand what this thing was and after about six months i'm like this is huge like this there's something going on here that's going to be that's going to be massive i don't know what it is some of it's going to be interesting some of it's going to reproduce things some of it's going to try and move things in new directions but they're trying people are trying to rebuild rebuild things uh, you know, in, in, as, as a form, use technology to further political interests and democratization, right? And, uh, and so I went into, so about six months went by, I went to my research lab in 2017 when I had my first meeting with the students. I said, look, I go, all of these projects that we're working on, stop working on them. Finish the ones we're doing. I wrote blockchain on the board. I go, this is what we're doing from here on out. It's this big. It's this important. This is the third wave of the internet. I really, really think this is important. And so, and so from that point on, that's where most of my work started working on. Blockchain, you know, crypto, what's become Web3. Um, you know, I teach like three courses on this now. And interestingly, I'm the only one teaching on this stuff at my university, um, like full full courses and stuff. Um, but, you know, in my career, I, I'm used to being the, being, being the only one doing something and not everybody understanding. I don't think people understood me with big data in the beginning, my colleagues. But all of a sudden, we started hiring in it. And I'm not the one that suggested it. So, you, so I'm kind of, so I'm kind of at that space again, Toby. I'm at this space where, you know, there's a few of us doing these things. I'm connecting with people around the world, which I love to do, um, and, uh, and getting students interested, uh, to things that they are really, really interested in. And I think these days, especially when it comes to the, the new economics for the Zeds, for the Zed the generation, they don't, they're not hopeful. They're not hopeful about things like, like that, uh, that you know, Xers and boomers could do, which is to buy a house, to have a car, to have a family, to, you know, to go on vacations, a thing that we were taught that if you got a good job, if you went to university, that would be attainable for you. Of course, in a Western context, obviously, it's different, different parts of the world. But, um, you know, so they're nervous about these things. And interestingly, this seems to be a place of hope. For them. And, and I'm not sure what's going to happen with this, to be perfectly honest. I have no idea, but uh, it's been a it's been a really interesting ride along the way, an incredibly fruitful area of analysis across so many different places and sectors and things. So, so sometimes I choose them and sometimes they choose they choose me.
1: And finally, Peter, is there something you'd like to mention briefly that we haven't touched on? It could be about your work, could be about Past, present,
0: future. Uh, no, no Toby, I really appreciate the conversation. You know, um, you know, one of the—it's uh, uh, it, funny. I was—I was thinking back. I feel like we're in an inflection point. You know, with things like AI, things like uh, blockchain, uh, these new technologies, and and, and what they, the the, the the possibilities and the and the perils of these sorts of things. And it feels like an inflection point, like when uh, Lisa Eckmer and I um, put together Race After the Internet in 2010, which was at the very early birth of social media. We didn't even, people were actually writing about social networking sites, not social media, but I made sure that social media was in the index by the time we were going to publish it, because it actually wasn't in there. But that's, I feel like we're kind of at that point again with the with the platforms, there's a disruption in the platforms these days. I uh, you know we're very aware of big data and surveillance and stuff. You know, ChatGPT and AI has has, has unearthed, you know, has shaken us over the last year um, you know, and then Bitcoin, you know, is, is going through a major point of adoption that could be announced today with the SEC. It's, it's it's January 10th right now, and we're waiting for the SEC to say that there's gonna be this major thing called the Bitcoin ETF. That will be a huge point of adoption for this particular thing. Now it's all finance oriented. But that just means that this thing that started with the Satashinoko white paper is moving further and further into into society. And um, I don't know where these things are going to go. So I think we're really, really. They
1: have to regulate it because it's a toy of organized crime
0: which is a major discourse. And interestingly, Toby, you say that, like this, this is the funny thing about discourse is, is that, is that the empirical evidence shows that the actual criminal use of, of Bitcoin is actually less than a, 0.1% of the entire amount of Bitcoin. And it's funny that when, it, when, I, when we had these conversations about this, you know, I always say, well, you know, how many movies have you seen? I say to friends, how many movies have you seen where criminals are using, you know, criminals are using Bitcoin for the, the, the three parts, the three parts of the, the uh, criminal ecology, you know, guns, drugs, and people. Right? And they think they look and they go, I don't know, I haven't really seen many movies like that. I go, how many movies have you seen the U.S. dollar, the fiat currency being used for criminal activities? They're like every single movie. Every single one. So, well, single I think one.
1: it's very hard to track exactly what percentage is dedicated to that. But the other thing, of course, is the environmental impact, which in the case of Bitcoin itself is big, but is being diminished by various alternatives, uh, a couple of which you mentioned. But these Mm -hmm. are the dystopic Mm -hmm. sides to this. The utopic Mm -hmm. side, as you say, emerges from the critique of the institutions that fleeced the working class around the world in order to sustain finance capital after its Mm -hmm. classic chronic
0: failure in 2008. Mm -hmm.
1: Mm -hmm. So there's no doubt.
0: Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, no, no. And and this is where it's interesting, right? Is because the dominant discourses around this tend to focus on these things. And and but you know if you look at where actual projects are happening in the global south, um, a lot of the major moves in adoption are in places like Barbados, places like um, um, parts of Africa. Um, You know some of the projects to bank the underbanked and the unbanked people of different parts of the world that have been left out of systems like that. Like this is where that true the intentions and also the 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 early projects came from. It's about solving social problems. You know, and, and we also don't tend to look at, um, uh, compare these things. We think, you know, Bitcoin uses a lot of energy. That's a great headline to a newspaper article, uh, to a story, but there's no comparison. Well, yeah, it uses a lot of energy, but what is that relative to? And usually when we talk about these things, it's relative to something else. When we stream Netflix, when we use Instagram, when we use TikTok, we're using way more energy. There's oh, a magnitude absolutely. energy. Absolutely.
1: TikTok you know is a mean? grotesquerie. Netflix is a grotesquerie. <laughs> All of these things, yeah. much, much worse. I, I couldn't agree more. Watching sports yeah. on your telephone should be yeah. against the law, basically, in terms of environmental impact.
0: Well, yeah. So, so the, 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 this is the inflection point we're at, and these are great yeah. questions and great conversations.
1: Thank you so much. I feel as though I've learned an enormous amount in the last hour or so in Professor Peter. It's been great, and I want to thank you enormously.
0: I mm-hmm. think thank you very much Toby I really appreciate it I love that you're getting your your, your podcast up and going again um, it's a great service to the community and they're a lot of fun to listen to so thank you